Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are in the final week of our question series, and the question that was sent in to us was this. How do I understand bringing glory to God in my deconstructed Christian faith? So the question for you to start off with is, how do you think about bringing glory to God? Enjoy. So the question that was sent in is, what does it mean to give God glory in my now deconstructed Christian faith? Question mark. And then something along the lines of, I grew up as a Southern Baptist. I don't know how to make any sense of this. So anyone there? Anyone feel that ever? Just two people. Right. So this is going to be a great sermon for all of you. This is going to be good. This is going to be good. There's like a deeper question for me in the question about giving God the glory. I think what we're really saying is, who is God? And what does this God actually want from me? And so the goal always is not to talk about God, but at the end of the day, you're here in some capacity because you want to encounter and experience and have relationship with this God. You're not trying to talk about God. You want to talk to God and with God and in the midst of God. And so it becomes difficult when we have these old narratives and these old templates about who God is. And for a lot of us, including myself, these old templates about who God was, was that God was really scary, to be honest. It was a lot of kind of what Justin scared. I think God likes me, but at the end of the day, what I feel God is doing is don't do this, stop that, get over that. And that really what God wants to bring out is the belt and beat some ass, right? Did anyone ever feel that way growing up? Yeah. And so this question is deeper for me than just how do we bring God the glory, because I'm not even sure what all of that means. I think at this point and how I understand the universe, I don't think that there's a God out there with an ego. And we've talked about God that way a lot of times, that somehow this God would create 13.8 billion years of existence. And what this God most cares about is how you raise your hands in a worship service, right? And there's like always like, well, the what kind of church you went to, you would know by just watching people in their worship service, right? Some of you went to Presbyterian Church. Some of you, right? Yeah, right, right. Some of you went to, like, I went to APU, so it was a little bit of this, like one hand up, one hand down, like, you know. Like every now and then you get like bold enough, like Francis Chan would be speaking, you'd be like, one of those? That's a good one, right? I love, like, the church I grew up in, we would never get this. So you do a little bit more of this. Those? Yeah. So I also am, like, a closet charismatic. So my favorite is church is, like, now you got, like, speaking in tongues going on. Like, we're moving around. Any flag wavers or tambourine people out there? You see a good flag waved in church? I don't care who you are. That's doing something to you, you know? You're like... Right? Just think that thing is moving. Tambourines are going. When I, I went to Bolivia for like three summers, and the pastors there would tell me, we don't stop until the kids are crying or until we see an angel. Right? 
And I remember thinking like, nah, maybe the translator has this wrong. So I get somebody else like, what did he say? We don't stop until the kids are crying, until we see an angel. I'm like, we're going to be here a while, or somebody start crying soon. Like, let's just get this thing over with. It's crazy. But what's interesting is that we, we can mock a little bit, right? And we all know this is a reality about like how much like physical movement we can bring into things that we call worship centers or sanctuaries or churches. What we believe somehow is that these boxes built somewhere in the 1950s, apparently, right, are the place in which glory to God happens. And then somehow there's like the rest of our lives. When we started New Abbey, one of the biggest things that we did for like six months is we just had to like ingrain in people and rewire this reality that there are no sacred and there is no secular. There is not places in which God like cannot see like, oh no, there's a little kid looking at a Playboy right now. I can't see this, right? But we talk that way. Instead of, no, God's in the midst of everything. There's not a temple in which God resides. The whole thing is a temple. But when we do the, how do I bring God glory language, we lived in a world in which there was only a very specific temple. And there were very specific ways in which you would honor this God. And the good news was predicated upon some type of subjective contextual morality of the culture that you lived in. And so how you pleased God and how God was pleased with you, right, all came down to how good you could be, some things that you couldn't do, and then very specific things that you could do. So my son has this box that he does not share with anybody. Uh, this is his spaceship box in which he has his calendar in. Uh, it has his hieroglyphics. He's got his ABCs in there, right? If Bryce or Bella get in there, there is hell and high water to pay for that. And so I think for many of us, there's this reality that like we grew up in a world of God and God had to fit in a very specific box. And if we ever tried to push this box open, people would push back on us and they would say, no, we only do the one hand thing here, right? No, we raise two hands. You're not speaking in tongues yet. The Holy Spirit isn't even within you. Fill in whatever line is for you. And that's how God worked. And so in some ways, we're always just asking this deeper question. Am I doing this right? And then for most of us in this room, you got out of the box. And it just doesn't fit anymore. And we talk about this in here all the time. Why I care about New Abbey is not that I believe that New Abbey is for everyone. I just want to make sure that everyone needs New Abbey, will find out about it, or a community like it. A community that says, God does not fit in the box. Don't worry about the box. Have some freedom outside of the box. And you can still do the God and Jesus thing outside of the box. It'll be okay. You don't have to be scared of that. I shit you not, every week, I'm in a cussing mood this morning, I apologize. <laughs> I have a potty mouth. My favorite word is the F word, but I'll save that one. <laughs> Make sure you put explicit on this, Sean, when you do the podcast. Sean's right there. Thank you very much. That'd be great. <laughs> I gotta remember what I was talking about, but. I shit you not, I shit you not every week. <laughs> we are back. I have a coffee or a beer with somebody, and what they desperately need from me is just permission to say, yeah, you're not crazy, and you're not alone. 
And I know that everyone in your life told you that this is the only way that you can do the God thing in this box. And for the first time, you're experiencing something bigger. And what you need to trust is what's happening internally. What you need to trust is the transformation and the new life and the new creation that's happening in here. Because you're in a world now where you don't have to just trust all of the external sources. You don't have to trust it just because the pastor says it. You don't have to trust it because that's their interpretation of the Bible. You don't have to trust it just because that's that particular tradition. All of those things, tradition and scripture and spirit, are pointing towards this reality that God is already in you. And so today when we talk about giving God the glory, we're going to expand on this idea that you are already the temple of God. And the litmus test for how God is pleased is happening within you. People are like, well, that's terrifying. That's a slippery slope. That's so subjective. No, that's reality. You can only experience God from your own reality. These other things are just guide marks or posts, right, to shape you towards the reality that's happening in here. The goal is not to build the temple. The goal from the whole time is to realize that the whole thing has been a temple. So if we're going to talk about giving God the glory, Let's talk about some things. The thing behind the thing, Pina Colada song, because come on, it's Sunday morning. Uh, the Gates Foundation, the Bible's mission statement, the whole thing's the temple. Then we're going to get into one of my favorite Hindu creation stories, a little hide and go seek here. Then we're going to talk about awe and gratitude. That's supposed to say thanks or than. We'll talk about than. <laughs> and then the first day of kindergarten, because we also sent a little terrorist to school this week, so it's good. <laughs> He's actually really beautiful, but it's been a hard week with the rhythms. So here we go. The thing behind the thing is everything that I just talked about, that there's this reality, there's this thing behind the thing, behind the thing, behind the thing, behind the thing that for all of us, that when we ask these bigger questions about who God is, we're just really asking, what's the real template for reality? So what you think about God, how you experience God, how you communicate with God actually is incredibly important because this is the template for the reality that you live in. So if you think that God is always angry at you, if you are living in fear, as I did as a little boy growing up, that if I said shit, that I was going to miss the rapture, that will shape the way that you live your life. Once you start to open that thing up and you realize, oh my goodness, this God enjoys me. This God is crazy in love with me. And in fact, there's 13.8 billion years of evolving creation and life that we're like stepping into as humanity that this God has created for us. And we're trying to say that this God is worried about the one or two-handed difference in worship songs. How myopic is that? Because if you don't have a God that can deal with subatomic particles and supernovas and Google and Tesla and Neanderthals, this is not an interesting God worth giving glory to in the first place. Because it's not that this God didn't know about these things, it's that we didn't know about these things. So let's stop being worried on God's behalf. God's not as terrified as we think that God is. God is God's the one that's going to be okay in this one, just so you know. Yeah. It's us that have to do some processing and some growing. And thank goodness that we get to figure this thing out together. And on top of thousands of years of tradition of people who have just been figuring it out in their context. But we're not trying to live into their secondhand experience. We're trying to live into ours now in Los Angeles in 2018. So sometimes what happens is when we start to encounter this God in a new and fresh way, we realize this. It's not that God was uninteresting. It's not that God was somehow this myopic, angry, fearful God. This is just the way that I interpreted this God. 
Sometimes what happens is you like enter into like a new relationship or you begin to see this thing in a bigger way and you begin to realize, oh my gosh, God has all, always been surprising me. God has always been bigger than me. I cannot believe that somehow as human beings, we are going to outpace God. Again, what kind of God is that, that, te- that Elon Musk could outpace the creativity of God, right? Pick a name, it doesn't matter to me. But what happens in the church is that we're scared of that. But for me, what I want to get to is this reality of just be open to surprise. And what you might realize is this old God who you've had a relationship with, who you thought has nothing interesting going on, maybe in fact is fascinating the whole time. And this really beautiful worship song, Pina Colada, tells me a lot about that. Enjoy.
Come on. That's us and God. Yeah. It's us and God. It's this reality of we get tired. This thing feels old and worn out. We feel like, I guess there's just no magic here anymore. And the story of God is not, oh, the grass is greener on the other side. I got to go find this other thing. The real secret to any spirituality is bloom where you're planted. You already have a certain context. You already have a certain understanding of God. It's about growing in that and realizing, oh my goodness, this God was more interesting the whole time. I just didn't know that, right? You got that smile on your face. You're like, oh, it's you. It's you at O'Malley's. I, I knew it was you, God. But sometimes that's not how we approach it. And so the reality that we always want to move towards here, right, is just don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Trust that God is already here. One of my favorite sayings from the rabbis about the burning bush, it's not that the bush started burning and that Moses saw it. It's that the bush was always burning and Moses finally had eyes to see. That's very different. God was always interesting. God was always outpacing all of us. God was already doing a couple shots at O'Malley's, my friend, right? And we're like, you're here too. This is the good stuff. You did not see that coming on a Sunday morning. <laughs> and so we got to grow into this thing. There's the Gates Foundation, and the Gates Foundation has this audacious mission statement for what they believe about the world, and it goes like this. It says, guided by the belief that every life has equal value, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation works to help all people lead healthy and productive lives. Look at how audacious that is. They were the $20 billion startup when they began, the largest startup in history. Now they have $160 billion, and they track things with incredible detail, and they have now eliminated two diseases on planet Earth, right? Because they have audacious enough goals to say we have technology and we have science and we have resources and we have the ability to do good work in this world, we're going to do it. So I always wonder, how is it that the Gates Foundation can have this audacious goal, but sometimes in the church, we're just like, did enough kids come to youth group on Wednesday? Huh? That's the shit we care about now? How many butts are in seats on Sundays? New Abbey has one mission statement. How do we tell the biggest story of God possible in Los Angeles in 2018 that year changes every year, just so you know? <laughs> Leading to healing, transformation, and maturity. That's what I care about. I don't care how many butts gets in seats. I don't care if you come one time, never come back on a Sunday, if you're part of a community that is finding health. If you're finding healing and you're finding transformation and you're finding maturity, that's the goal. There's no attendance to be tracked. There's no programs that we need to do so that we can get people jobs and they need to keep convincing you to come to that thing because they got to keep their job because that's what they get paid for to do now. We're not a cruise ship. We're not a business. This place will only do this thing if healing is happening and transformation happening as maturity is happening. And every day that I wake up, I experience a conversation with someone in this room, including myself, where that's taking place. That's my audacious goal. And I want to keep finding healing and I want to keep finding transformation and I want to keep finding maturity so that other people can find it as well. Because I want other people to realize the fact that it's not your old lady, it's you. It's not your partner, it's not whatever, it's not your view of God. It's that we just need, I mean, it is your, it is your view of God. You need to expand your perspective of who God is, that God, in fact, can handle all of the deconstruction and the reconstruction that you're going through, and that that's going to be okay. 
And so the Bible opens with this beautiful poem about what God is doing and who God is. And it has this audacious statement as well in Genesis 1. And it says this, Then God said, Let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness. So God created humanity in his, her own image. In the image of God, she created them. Male and female, he created them. It's beautiful. That God already said the most audacious statement possible. That God was telling human beings, you're all made in my image. All of you. Well, what about, no, 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 no. Well, what if this person, no, 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 no. You're all made in my image. Bill and Melinda Gates have invested $120 billion believing that every single human being is made in the image of God. And we're worried about if someone said the prayer right, got the water dripped on them in the correct way, if they're using drums in their worship service. Get over ourselves. That's not interesting. And you know what I say to the more progressive Christians? Let's get over our cynicism. Let's get over our critique. Let's get over our complaining. Let's address those things. Let's find some healing about that stuff. But at the end of the day, the Gates Foundation is out there doing real work. We can sit around and bemoan everything all day long. And I've spent a long time doing that, as you can tell, because I'm fired up. <laughs> but I want to be a people who are finding healing. I want to be a people who are finding transformation. I want to be a people who are maturing and where we can start with the blank, audacious reality and mission statement of the scriptures, which is you are all made in my image. And likeness is more challenging, let's be honest with that. Some people are more like God than others. Some people have a little bit more kindness in them and a little bit more empathy and a little bit more compassion and show a little bit more grace. That thing clearly fluctuates in some capacity. But the reality that we're living into is to call out that image in people, to remove all the barriers to entry that we have so often done, to remove this egoic God who desperately needs our worship and praise, to getting to a point of, which we're going to get to a little bit later, of how we change how we enter into awe and gratitude and asking for help with this God. And so, going back to the other slide... We gotta open up the Bible's mission statement and start talking about how the whole thing is a temple. I'm gonna do this part really briefly. So most of us think about the Bible in a very linear term. We think that from Genesis to Revelation, sometimes it was all written like in order. There was somebody with like a Microsoft document there and God was like speaking into their ears and that's how it got done. Just a spoiler alert, that's not how the Bible got put together. Also, the Bible's not written like modern day books. So one of the problems that we have as Christians in 2018 is that we think that the Bible kind of starts in Genesis because it begins with Genesis. But the reality is those are probably not even the oldest stories that were in the Bible. The, the bread and butter of the Old Testament is actually the Exodus story. It's about the salvation and the justice and the freedom that God brings God's people. And the Exodus story, what happens later is we kind of backfill in Genesis. Do we have evidence for this? Actually, we have a ton. We have archaeological evidence. We have evidence about when oral traditions happened, how we told the Exodus story. And here's this other reality. The Bible will repeat the Exodus story hundreds of times in the Old Testament. It will never repeat the stories of, uh, of Genesis 1 through 11 ever. Isn't that fascinating? Yet in today's world, we are incredibly fascinated with the stories of Genesis 1 through 11, particularly over the last 150 years when we were in a war and a debate with culture about how the world began. Now we just know better, so we got to move on from that thing. Here's why that's actually important, is that the people of God, the root-based narrative, what was baked into their DNA was that this God is a deliverer that frees them from oppression and freed them from Pharaoh and Egypt. 
Then what will happen over the next thousand years is that the Israelites, the Hebrews, will be in oppression by every major superpower the world ever sees. Eventually, in the year 586 BC, everybody's favorite year in ancient history, am I right? Come on, right? The Babylonians take over Israel and they bring everybody and they make them captive in Babylon. Now, all of a sudden, we see these Genesis stories pop out of nowhere, probably moving from some type of oral tradition now into writing for the people of God to understand. Here's why. Your narrative was based upon a God who frees you and liberates you and provides you justice from superpowers, and now you are in oppression by a superpower. So now what happens all of a sudden is that the people of God start telling a bigger story about who this God is. They still find hope in who this God is. So in the ancient world, what would happen is that every time a superpower would defeat you, you would take on their God. But in all of history, feel free to look this up, the Israelites, the Jews, are the only people on history who did not take the gods of the other countries. They maintained their allegiance to Yahweh, even though they got their butts kicked throughout history. There's something fascinating happening here about their devotion, about their allegiance, about how they understand this God. And so one of the things that happens is that as the Israelites are sitting in Babylon, they are surrounded by the gods of this ancient culture of the Babylonians. They're surrounded with this ancient Babylonian creation story in which these gods are warring with each other. And it's in the war of these gods and the tearing apart of bodies that we actually create the known world as we know it. And these Babylonian gods have a very low view of who human beings are. But that's not how the Israelites saw the world. They don't have a God who comes in, who conquers, who uses power to oppress and subjugate other human beings. Their God comes in and frees and liberates and opens it up for the lowest of the low. This God is always fighting for the lowest in humanity. Why? Because if we can find God's image in the lowest of humanity, then we'll be easily be able to find it everywhere else. These arrows of this narrative are completely reversed. So now here's where the Genesis 1 story comes from. They start telling the story of this God. And when you read the whole Genesis story, something is missing that most of us don't pay attention to because we don't live three to 4,000 years ago. In other creation stories, what you eventually get to is there is a temple, my friends. And there is a temple in which this God resides and where these priests are, and this is where the magic happens. But in the very beginning of the Bible, the story that gets put in front of Exodus eventually later on, there's a story now where there is no temple. This God is not controlled by human beings and what's happening in the temple. This God makes the entire cosmos and the whole cosmos is God's temple. It's a very different story. This story just opened things up quite a bit. And that's incredibly important when you lived in an ancient world and God is relegated to a very physical location. So this God can only be worshiped in this very specific place. Are you tracking with me on this? And now what happens is this creation story comes along and says, no, this God is bound by no physical space. There is no temple that holds this God. The whole thing is the temple of God. Now, Israel will go through a time where they will build temples and, you know, and they'll say that God asked us to do this and they'll do all of these things. But the history of the story of the Israelites is eventually those temples get destroyed. That temple will first get destroyed by those same Babylonians in the year 586. And that's why they get moved into Babylon. Later, that temple will be rebuilt. And Jesus will even say, this temple is going to get destroyed as well. And then Paul will pick up on these writings and he will begin to say, there's no more temple for one reason. And he says it in 1 Corinthians here. 
Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? This is the evolution of the thing. It's not about building little temples and convincing kids to learn all of their Awanas verses. It's not about people having to be baptized in just one specific way. It's not about how you raise your hands on a Sunday. Right? Even Jesus was saying this in the ancient world, Pharisees and Sadducees, like, get over all the temple worship stuff. Because when you do that, it's just a game of power. Who can do it right? Who's doing it wrong? And of course, you're the holy one, so you reap from this power structure, just like most pastors and most of the in-crowded churches reap from this structure as well. And yet, it's like the Bible from page one all the way through is trying to rid us of this idea of a temple and trying to expose us to this greater reality of you're the temple of God. You're where the magic happens. You're where God's spirit resides. Start looking for this when you read the scriptures. You'll see it in Revelation 22, the very last chapter of the Bible now. This story says, and the temple was no more. All it was was God and the lamb and us, right? So it's like that it's been there the whole time, but we haven't been given interpretive lenses to see that because we live in a culture where we desperately want to build temples because when we build temples a certain way, and generally not even maliciously, it allows us to maintain the tribe. It allows us to maintain power. It allows us to say who's in and who's out. But the audacious mission statement of the Bible, everybody's in. The audacious mission statement of the Bible is our job is not to go out and convert people. Show me where Jesus converts people. I'll show you a, a lot of times where Jesus asks people to follow him, which is very different. That is calling something out of you that's already there. Jesus is trying to call out of you this reality that the image of God has already been within you. Jesus will say words, right? Like, where is the spirit? Spirit's like the wind. You can't control that thing. It blows wherever it wants to. Where is this kingdom of God you speak of, Jesus? This kingdom is already within you. Stop looking everywhere else. The language is all baked in, but we have to free ourselves to that reality that the temple of God, there is no temple of God. The whole thing's a temple. Now then, how does that bring a broader perspective to how you bring God glory? Does it change it for you that it doesn't have to happen just in a specific room in a very specific way with very specific words at a very specific time, generally between 9 and 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning? And does it open it to, wow, the hike was giving glory to God? Yeah, because it was all God's anyways. My kids screaming and me living in the suffering of figuring out, am I parenting right? God's glory. My deepest moments of weakness and suffering when all the morality went to shit and I thought my life was falling apart? Yeah, God was found there. Because the mystery of it is that God was found in the most God-forsaken place. Even Jesus uses these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? when there's no hope and there's nothing left and it's all brokenness and it's all hurt and it's all pain and it's all death. And the story of the cross is there for a reason, that if God can even be there when Jesus is asking if God's forsaken me, then God can be in the whole temple as well. The Hindus have this beautiful creation story where God creates everything. And then when God creates humanity, God plays a little game of hide and go seek. And the game of hide and go seek goes like this, that God puts God's self in each human being, but then makes God's self forget it. So that one day when you have that moment of like awakening or being aware or whatever language you use, maybe it was that moment that you raised your hand at Hume Lake. I don't care. It was an important moment for you, right? There was something in you that realized like, oh, there's more going on here. And that's even when God's like, hey, there's something more going on here. And there's something really beautiful about that story for me. 
that I love, there's this idea that God enjoys the surprise and the growth and the evolution of your life too. God is not sitting around secretly waiting to spank you. God is around enjoying your deepest, darkest betrayals and hurts and pain. Or sorry, I should say standing in solidarity with you in those realities. Not enjoying, that's sadistic and gross. <laughs> and God enjoys the resurrection and the beauty and the life and the re and reconciliation that we all experience. But do you see the difference in that narrative? We're not creating secret lines in which God is in and God is out or which we're in or which we're out. The secret of Jesus is always trying to create a path in which this hope is for all people. Read Colossians, that the goal, it says, of the good news is that all things would be reconciled. Not just that a few people would go to church on a Sunday. That's the myopic view that we've made, but that's not the breadth and the audacity of what this good news has always been. And there's a lot of other stuff baked in the Bible as well, but this good news at this biggest level is there the whole way from beginning to end. It's just a matter if we want to see it or not in the midst of all of the other things that were shaping the people of God thousands of years ago and that we're wrestling and figuring out today. And so I end with this litmus test. If you can move from this place where we stop creating lines and you can move to a broader reality where God's not just found in one place, but that the whole thing's a temple, then now you are the litmus test for God's glory. Can you begin to come into a place where you get to see awe in everything that you do? Like I love geeking out reading the Bill Gates Foundation uh, kind of annual letter every year. I love watching Elon Musk's videos of SpaceX and like these rockets that like land on platforms in the middle of the ocean, right? There's like all these things I geek out about because it brings me awe of God, that God created this world where we are figuring out how to like send things to Mars. I'm in awe of the fact that we have the capacity to feed every human being on planet Earth. Are we doing it? No, but we have the capacity and that's a big difference in where we were 100 years ago. We have the capacity to bring justice. We have the capacity to give water to everybody. We have the capacity to make sure that every woman, that every man, that every boy, that every girl can get education on planet Earth. We have the capacity to do these things. That brings me awe. Do we do it? No. So that's where we come in. Because there was other times on planet Earth and other times in history where we didn't even have the capacity to do that. We also have the capacity to blow everything up in a moment's notice. So that's terrifying as well. But we got to hold all that together. And for me, I trust and have awe in God that we're there, that we have a chance to hopefully redeem and reconcile some of the brutal things we've done as human beings throughout history. That gives me awe. I also want to live in gratitude that every day I wake up, that you are awake right now, that we are breathing, that we have consciousness, that we can make love at midnight and drink pina coladas, my friends. You should be excited about that. And if we're not, then like, what's the use of this thing? That's how I get to bring glory to God, by having gratitude for all of the little moments in life. And for me, the reality is if I can have awe about how big we know what the universe is now, like, and I'm so excited to get blown away over like the next hundred years when I have like robot legs, you know, pretty fired up about that. And if I can have some gratitude, then it also brings me to a place where I can genuinely ask for help where I can genuinely live into suffering, where I can genuinely say, I don't have it all figured out, God, and I need you. We need you. There's brokenness and there's pain in this world. There are people who 
are sexist and xenophobic and whatever, all the things that we know. And I want to change that. So God, we need your help. We can't do this alone. And your narrative has been that no temple can contain you and that you're a God who brings about freedom and justice and liberates people. And we want to be a part of that thing as this world keeps advancing and moving forward in some bigger and broader way. And I think in that, in our real lives as the temple of God, then we bring about glory in a brand new way. And so Caden, and I finish with this, went to kindergarten on Monday. And he held up the sign, you know, the class of 2031. That should blow your mind. I had a panic attack in that moment that I am not saving enough money for college. So that was real. But I also found myself leaving and praying for my son in a different way because I've evolved in a different way in this God conversation. I think there was a time in my life where my kid would have gone to school. You know, this is maybe 15 years ago in my life, and I would have been praying like that my kid would be a light and like save all these people, or I don't know, some language around that. That's just what I knew. And now the reality for me is, God, I just want to know that, that I want to make sure that Caden knows how loved he is, how much he is made in your image, how much on the first day of school when he came home, he talked about another little boy throwing sand on people, but he used kind words and he was thoughtful to make sure that those kind of things don't happen. He may be a billionaire, he may be poor, I don't care about any of that. I care about what kind of human being he's gonna be. And that he lives well into that and that when he's living into the reality of the image that he's made in, when he's more like who this God is, then he calls that reality out around the people of the people around him, including the other little five-year-olds in his class. That was my prayer on Monday. And that's my prayer for us. That how we think about God changes the way that we pray, how we live, how we live into this entire universe and where glory can be given and found. And that, my friends, I think is everywhere. With that said, let's answer some questions together. How is the temple getting bigger for you? We're just gonna take a few minutes to do this and then we'll come back together. Find the same people you were chatting with before. Enjoy. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.